Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoos. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Alex Kajelski, Editor-in-Chief of The Athletic UK. We spoke to Alex about committing to sports journalism in his teens, his years at the Daily Mail and The Times, and launching The Athletic in the UK with a roster of celebrated football journalists. We spoke to Alex a while back before the news of the New York Times acquisition of The Athletic broke, but it's a great episode all the same and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Alex, to Always Take Notes. It's great to have you on the show. Could we start by talking about when you got the call from Alex Mavert uh, about The Athletic? What was that like? It was a surprise, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember there'd been like a couple of tiny little murmurings that something was happening from America, from some company I'd never heard about. Um, and I was um, asked whether my number could be passed across because I was I think at the time it wasn't even like to do with a job it was like sort of you know to try and understand the market a little bit um and I can still remember it now I just remember standing in my living room on the phone to this very enthusiastic like guy who was like painting out how he was going to try and create this incredible football journalism thing in in the UK and I remember getting off the phone and turning to my husband and being like, okay, if this is even like half of what he says it is, we really need to take this seriously. It was amazing. And could you explain a bit, um, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with it, but maybe for anyone who's not, of, of what The Athletic is and, and where it came from and what, it, what it's hoping, hoping to do. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in, in, on a wider scale, uh, Alex and Adam, who are the founders of the company, just coming up for six years ago, decided they weren't happy with the way that they could read about their own local sports teams in America. So they thought, oh, I, I think we can change this up a bit. And they started hiring a few writers um, and asking people to subscribe to read what they thought was better quality content. And the whole thing just took off, right? Like, I think they started with Chicago and then it went to Canada and it just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed and became this huge thing um, to the point where they decided that going to the Premier League and going for the more international um, arm was a good idea. And, and here we are. So what do we do? I mean, we try and write about football journalism and do video and audio as well, but in depth, 
and balanced and maybe from like some certain angles that other people don't have the time or the resources to do I guess um we there are the like the basis like I said before of okay you're not going to have adverts on the app we're not going to try and lure you in with some sort of clickbaity headline but yeah we're just trying to tell people stuff they don't know about their teams and I think the other key thing here is that we have dedicated writers for teams like big ones and small ones so whereas if you go to a website or a newspaper the editors of those publications decide what's important that day you can just decide right I'm a Norwich City fan and all I want to read in the whole world is Norwich City you don't have to see any of our other content so you kind of choose what the app looks like for you and I guess that's like quite a novelty um, in our industry and so really we take Norwich City as you know we treat Norwich the same as we treat you know Aston Villa or you know, some of these other like really big clubs. Yes, we have multiple writers on like the really, really big clubs with huge fan bases, but we treat them the same way, basically. I hope that sort of makes it clear what we do. <laughs> so I read that when Alex and Adam had the idea for um, The Athletic in America, it was mostly because the field itself was sports journalism wasn't particularly in depth. It wasn't particularly rigorous. Do you think the same was true of, of the British field, given that, you know, the broadsheet coverage is so good and you have things like BBC Sport? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you just answered your own question almost there. I mean, the competition, if you want to put it that way, over here is just huge, right? You've got, you've got the BBC, like this amazing publicly funded entity that is just able to cover so much and so much depth across like video and audio and written. And then you've got, like brilliant websites, incredible newspapers, like the amount of talent that is out there and the amount of people like breaking stories and doing big investigations, like there is just so, so strong. But then it's quite interesting that when we started out, I think a lot of people were like, oh, is this like some threat to the newspapers? But I never viewed it like that because I've always figured that when we launched, people would see what we did. And they'd be like, oh, we wouldn't really want to put that in a national newspaper. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to read 1,200 words on like West Brom's left-back conundrum, right? So it was always supposed to be different. And like, the newspapers do like all these brilliant things. And that's great that they do those brilliant things. But generally what we're doing is a little bit different to them. Um, because if we just tried to be a newspaper, that would be really weird, wouldn't it? Because there's loads of newspapers and they're already, doing, they're already producing a lot of good journalism. So I, I never really like look at it is like direct competition at all. I just sort of think like we're trying to do something that they're not or the BBC aren't. Was the flip side of that, the kind of American perspective coming in access? My, my understanding, and you will know a lot more than, about this than I do, but that traditionally in the US, like sports writers have had really incredible access. Like they've been able to get into dressing rooms and, and spend long times with teams. Whereas particularly with the Premier League, that the, the way access is controlled for journalists is it's much tighter is that is that fair oh it's definitely tighter over here i mean we're used to that our journalists are used to that that's that's not really a, an adaptation for us and so we just went about our jobs in the same way and i think actually covid changed that for america anyway um i don't know that much about the ins and outs but i don't obviously with covid it's not like people were in the dressing rooms as much anymore in the u.s so it wasn't really an issue for that you work within your own boundaries and what you're used to don't you you've said that you didn't 
envisage or don't envisage The Athletic as competing with newspapers. I'm sure you're sick to death of having this quote asked of you, but the, one of the founders saying that it would bleed dry local papers, particularly in terms of the talent hiring. That comment was obviously later wrote back, but why do you think people responded so badly to The Athletic when it was originally founded? Do you mean in America I mean, or in the UK? In the, in the UK. I mean, particularly as well within the journalism industry, obviously sports fans, football fans in particular, were presumably quite pleased about it. Yeah, I have to say, like, I know there were a few people who weren't happy about it existing. But I actually don't think it was most most people because, OK, for fans, there's another option there. They either like what we do or they don't. That's their choice. And for the journalism industry, all of a sudden there were like 60 jobs being created in an industry that had been shrinking and shrinking. And that was good for either the people who joined here. Sometimes it meant that people left other publications and therefore were promoted at those places. Um, like, I just don't think it was bad for the industry and I just not I don't really sort of buy that I know some people didn't like the idea maybe some people still don't like the idea that's fine like everyone's allowed an opinion but I, I also think most people can see that like there is some good there um as well and yeah I, I like I just say I just think it's so different like if you're a subscriber to the Times or Telegraph like I don't think you're doing that just for the football are you you're probably doing that for all kinds of reasons, whether it's the crossword, the politics, the comment, the magazine and the sport. So I don't see why you'd give up, you know, a very big subscription for a lot of things to just have the athletics. So again, I, I just don't think it's that comparable. Could we, we want to come back to the athletic in, in more detail later in the interview, but can we roll back now to your, your own background? But is it right that you, you always wanted to be a journalist and you sort of described like knowing what you want to do as, as half the career battle? Is that correct? I think it's definitely half the career battle. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just always sort of wanted to do this. And therefore, like when I rocked up at uni, I was like, right, all that matters here, forget the degree. It's just like getting the student paper, be annoying, fill every holiday that I have with just working for whoever would take me for free and just build up a CV and try and sort of learn the, learn the job on the go, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I was lucky that I knew that I wanted, what I wanted to do because then I could do something about it, right? Like if you hit 25, 30, 35 and you're not sure what you want to do with your life, like that's just really unfortunate in some ways, I guess, because it takes you longer to to sort of build up that CV. So yeah, I was lucky. And then I worked my ass off because like, you don't like, I'm not like some super talented person. I'm just like someone who worked hard and is driven, knew what they wanted to do. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like proper cliche that, isn't it? That like, if you just work hard and know what you want, then it can all be all right. But I sort of do believe it. Just those, yeah, those two small things, working hard and knowing what you want to do. I read that you um, spent a lot of your holidays working at local papers. What was the experience of that like and what were some of the things that you covered? <laughs> trying to think back now. I definitely remember one week at the Cumberland and Westmoreland Herald um, up in the Lake District where I got sent to write about something called Potfest, which I was like, ooh, is this like drug related? But no, it was pottery. Um, so that I remember. And I particularly just remember... Like, it was so lovely of them to have me, but I just remember every night in this B&B on my own or like going to sit in the pub or a restaurant on my own and just think, oh my God, what am I doing? This is like a little bit soul-destroying, but it was just a great opportunity to get something on that CV. And then I did French and Spanish for my degree 
And so in third year, you go abroad. So I went to work for a French newspaper and an Argentinian newspaper for that year. And I, France was all in like English language and it was arranged before and it was all a bit crazy for a place that I think no longer exists, unfortunately, this newspaper, because it sort of sent itself bust, but they were very nice people. But Argentina, I didn't have anywhere. I just like turned up at the Buenos Aires Herald office on day one and was told to go away. And I just sort of kept going back until a woman called Graciela, who was the sports editor, was just like so bored of me <laughs> driving her mad that she just let me go there. And I lived this really weird life of starting at 6 p.m., finishing at 1, 1 a.m., and then like going out for dinner and going clubbing and like getting home at like eight in the morning and starting again. And that's fine when you're whatever I was, 21, 22 years old. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Am I getting boring now? I'm just talking nonsense, aren't I? <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating. I, I wanted to ask what particularly was it about sport? You clearly had this real drive to, to work in newspapers, but what was it about sport in particular that, that grabbed you? It was always just a big part of my life, right? Like went to went to Spurs with my dad ever since I was six years old and like got that bug and just was completely obsessed with it. And and then and then also just loved other sports, not on the level I love football, but I love tennis and I love cricket and I loved athletics, just all these things that it's just such a you know what I love about it? I love how irrelevantly, unimportantly important it is. It's just like I I try like quite hard to not get sucked into things I don't know about right and there are far more intelligent people out there who can talk about some of the really horrible miserable things in the world and I care a lot for some reason about something that doesn't matter and yet everyone pretends it matters so much don't they like people take journalism so seriously people take football so seriously it doesn't matter it's entertainment right like when I was at the times John Witherow was the editor there used to talk about how you know if people wanted misery then that's what the front of the paper's for. It's like, that's where your COVID is and your war and politicians, you know, doing whatever silly politicians do. And then you go to sport to escape. Like sport is, sport is what you go and see with your friends or your family to have fun and to forget about the world. Or it's what you do to have fun and get that sort of endorphin rush. Or it's, I don't know, like, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the silly bit, isn't it? It's like, it's just, entertainment and people just forget about that and that's why I love it is because I do like like everyone who's involved in this industry take it too seriously but I think deep down I know at the end of the day whether Spurs finish second fifth or 17th doesn't actually matter my boyfriend likens watching sport to watching a horror film because you have your heart in your mouth and you have no control over the events. But I think that might be because he's an Arsenal fan. <laughs> yeah, it might be. And it is stupid what it does to you. Like, I can't think of anything else that does that to you. And I don't really understand it, despite having been obsessed with it all this time. But I sure as hell prefer it to like having to listen to, I don't know, Labour and Tory backbenchers have a go at each other. And then you went to the Daily Mail for a graduate scheme. How did that work? I just like basically sent my CV off to anyone who would have me. And I, I, like, I remember sending off envelopes of like actual old fashioned cuttings. So like envelopes with a CV and stuff full of examples of what I did. And I sent them off to just anyone who had grad schemes or that would listen and just like watched all these rejection letters come in telling me how oh, I would never make it. And you're just like, okay, fine. Gonna have to find something to do. And then the mail invited me for an interview and I, I remember this interview very well because I sat down in this interview I swear I didn't even really talk and I left at the end I was like well that was that 
and then they offered me a, a place on their sub-editing grad scheme and to people who don't know what sub-editing is it's basically being in charge of the words and making sure they're accurate that the facts add up that the headlines are good that the picture captions are correct and and things like that and that's what I did I didn't even really know what I was doing I was just like right I've heard of the Daily Mail it's really famous um this, this feels like a good foot in the door and I sat there and learned a hell of a lot of a lot of amazingly bright people made a lot of mistakes obviously and started to work out oh, okay that's the job over there that I think I might quite like like I tried a bit of writing and then I was like no no I think that's the thing that sort of excites me and then I was very lucky that I had people who spotted that I maybe wasn't completely useless and started to give me a chance to do some sort of things with more responsibility. What kind of environment was it like at, at that time, you know, the mail 12, 13 years ago under under Paul Dacre? Like how, you know, there quite a lot has been written about the kind of environment that, that the paper had, how the, the aggression internally and stuff like that. And how did you find that? And did you have any, you know, any reservations working there or did you just feel feel it was a it was a job? I think it's like so much more nuanced than everyone says. Like, did did I like many people like feel a tiny bit you know uncomfortable with some of the things that got written at the front of the paper because I didn't agree with them well of course like, I think that's going to happen when anyone works for the newspaper but I worked in the sports pages where we weren't political <laughs> and it was generally very good natured and yeah it was demanding but it's also like I learned most of sort of my good habits from really good people there as well um and yeah like I think people think that like you just sit in this newsroom and like you know there's Paul Dacre like standing in the middle roaring just like hurling expletives like it just wasn't like that like I don't doubt that you know in the past or even when I was there some things I didn't see that Paul Dacre you know swore lots and maybe he did but you know, I spent a lot of time in his office and quite a bit of time with him and he didn't have me, right? So that's all I can go on. Like, I, it's, I, I don't think that other people aren't telling the truth. I can just sort of say what I see. And I, I had, you know, three people who worked there, who Lee Clayton, Les Snowden and Jim Mansell, who were sort of running that place. And they, they just taught me loads of great stuff. <laughs> um, and yeah, just, really grateful for that like it's you know do you sort of you know I I think like after I came out there was quite a lot of people going oh but like you know they say really really bad things about gay people I was like okay they have a couple of columns that I definitely don't agree with but you can't just like change everything in one go either or or, I don't know like these things are a bit more nuanced I think we love to go into the specifics of the craft of writing um, on this podcast. You mentioned some of the good habits that you picked up there. What were some of those in particular? Understanding when what a story is and what's important. And I think in particular, like just like banging into me and drumming into me, like what I now think is like the fundamental of what being a journalist is, which is tell people something they don't know. That might sound really obvious, but I think a lot of people think that being a journalist is about writing, and I just don't think it is. Like, there is wonderful writing out there, but the best journalists are people with information, aren't they? And, when, and that can come in any form. That can be, you know, to use examples from my current employers, like that can be like 
Michael Cox telling, giving you a really in-depth tactical guide to like the Champions League final. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be like a David Ornstein transfer. It, it can just be, it can come in all sort of shapes and forms. But the fundamental thing is, if you're telling people something they don't know, then you're doing your job. And that is far more important than what adjectives you use. Could you tell us about how your career progressed at the Mail, like how you how you rose up the rungs and, and sort of became more senior there? How did that work out? I've been really annoying, I think. Um, so I used to, like, on my days off, just volunteer to do stuff, like live blogs on the Australian Open tennis. And I started a tennis blog because I just sort of noticed that online they didn't do that much tennis at the time. So I just sort of started writing that. And then just chucking ideas at the people who are running the department just again and again and again and again. And then when Les Snowden, who I mentioned earlier, came in, I just, he seemed to like really want to like pay attention to these ideas that I had. And so therefore a, a position opened up, like quite junior position on the desk. And they're like, oh, I think you'd be good for that. So I did that and then started to use my languages more to get interviews or get flown to Spain or ever to do some background piece on a you know some midfielder who rocked up at Arsenal or something and hopefully over time people seem to see that okay he understands what this job's about um so yeah I it was a point in my life where I didn't have responsibility so I just basically worked whenever I wasn't officially working um and that was exciting back then I just didn't feel like a burden I was just so proud of being able to help. Um, yeah, and then it kind of escalated from there, really. And what informed your decision to move to the Times when that opportunity came up? Because it was just really exciting and different and just like quite a strong believer that if you stay in the same place for too long, then how do you ever learn anything that's different? And I didn't want to I didn't want to become institutionalized there. Um and I looked at the times of like, I felt like it probably needed a little bit of like a revamp in terms of its sports section. That's what they wanted anyway. And I liked the idea of taking something that was like, could be changed quite a lot and putting like a bit of my imprint on it. Like the thing with the mail was at that point, the mail sports section was incredibly impressive. Only like one sports newspaper of the year, every year and all this. And that was great because you have to keep those high standards up. But it, I like the idea of having something that was mine, I guess. And what was the Times like as an environment to work in compared to the Mail? And how did you go about that process of kind of reinventing things there? I, re- I remember my first day there. I walked in, I was like, oh, my God, it's a library. Like, it's so quiet. No one's talking in this place. And I went and sat down on these like, little sofas they've got and like, put my head in my hands. I was like, what have I done? I've come from this place where there's a massive buzz and everyone's chatting and like the games are on the TV and it's like, a, you know, a bit of noise. Like I loved all that. And I was like, nobody seems to talk here. Um, so that was a bit of an adaptation, but we managed to sort of get it a bit livelier. Um, but it really taught me about taking a breath. Like at the mail, sometimes it's like react, react, react. And at the times, especially under Tim Hallisey, who was my direct boss there. He was very good at like, just like, right, okay, this is what's happening. Take a deep breath. What do we think? How do we go analyze it deeper? Let's not react for the sake of reacting. And that really, really helped me. 
I think a because it's like much better for your health to not feel that you've got to be like going at 100 miles an hour all the time but also like I said earlier just seeing it from a different perspective it's also a very different feel like at the times you can see the editor's office the door is generally open like you can pop your head around as someone who's running a department and have that engagement whilst as a man it's a little bit what it was a little bit more hidden away um so yeah it was much much friendlier calmer environment i'd say is that the sort of thing that you prefer writing the kind of taking a step back finding the angle kind of article rather than the match reports or the quick takes or the breaking news match reports don't interest me that much anymore it's more about like giving people balanced information it's like I want people to come to our app and go, oh, that's what that means. And that's why that is like it is. And that doesn't mean we're going to get it right all the time. I'm sure we get loads wrong. Um, people, you know, we do try hard to get it right, but you can't be perfect. But we just, yeah, try and take that deep breath and go, right, here's what this means. And like, we're not the only ones doing that. Lots of people are doing that and doing it well. But that's it's kind of the name of the game, yeah. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with Alex K. Jelski, the editor-in-chief of The Athletic. You're about to hear the next instalment of a new segment we're trying out on the podcast. In this segment, you'll hear previous guests on the show answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests that we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the novelist David Baldacci on the most important trait a writer can have. Tenacity and perseverance. You're going to need it. I mean, I've worked on books for years at a time when... It seemed like I was never going to finish them. I've got a book now that I'm sort of finishing a totally different kind of thing. I've been working on this book for 11 years, you know, fits and starts, you know, where I write a bunch, cut everything out, write a bunch more, cut everything out, start over again. It's not an easy process and it's not designed to be because you're writing, when you think about you're writing a script or a book, you're, you are creating something that did not exist in the world before you sat down and thought of it and actually executed upon the story. So it shouldn't be easy to do. I just want people to understand that um, perseverance and tenacity and at bottom, those, what do those two things actually mean? Those things mean, mean that believe in yourself, you know, that you can actually do this story. And because belief is a fragile thing. And I have to say that once you lose belief in yourself, it's kind of lights out because the creative flame just goes out and you're done. That was David Baldacci. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Alex K. Jalski. Could we pick up again now with The Athletic? Can you tell us about what it was like actually setting it up, like the process of, of building a new uh, organisation, like bringing in a team, all, all that kind of thing? Like how, how did, it, did it work? so exciting like let's 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 not pretend that this isn't just like the coolest thing ever to be able to tell just to be told that you can hire a load of people but you've got to do it and launch in six weeks like at the time it was very stressful because a that is a stressful thing in itself b my boys twin boys were like six months old <laughs> and 
we were moving house and it was just like why are we why am i doing all these things at the same time like is this actually the most stupid thing ever um but it was fun like you were meeting people and on the phone to them like all day from like seven o'clock in the morning to midnight having conversations trying to persuade the right people to join trying to work out like what you wanted um and like there's been some such funny things written <laughs> about like meetings in glamorous hotels and people's salaries being doubled and i'm just like was i living some different life in that period <laughs> because what i remember is pacing up and down in the park at like 11 o'clock at night having conversations with people and um sometimes like being in lobbies of hotels meeting person after person like i was like having some sort of affair because no one could know that the other one was there um it was yeah so it, it was it was insane and good fun but i but also just like I've, I've told this story a hundred times so apologies for its lack of exclusivity but like it was so intense that when we finally launched i just burst into tears at my desk on that morning because the relief that we'd actually done this thing and that you know was was insane really <laughs> i'm glad you mentioned the salaries actually because that's one subject of the athletic that has been subject to sort of feverish speculation um You've said that you've always been honest about the fact that you offer competitive salaries, but if you're not kind of doubling them, as, as reports suggest, how did you go about calculating how much you should be offering people to kind of tempt them away from their current jobs? We just have, we just have conversations. Like, to be honest, like America had a budget and we had a budget to stay in. Like, <laughs> um, the, yeah, what was written in reality just were just miles and miles apart. Yeah, like, yes, this company pays people well to do their job but not like ridiculously so like especially for some of the people coming from you know places where they were maybe not as well paid then you know these jumps weren't huge but they maybe hadn't had a pay rise for a very very long time like that's nothing to be ashamed of like paying your staff like a decent amount of money like it's that's kind of okay um and everyone's like oh well they're gonna get everyone it's gonna disrupt the market well we didn't and like there were loads of people who chose not to come. Like, it's not for everyone. That's obviously completely fine. What did you think of the kind of established sort of kingpins of, of newspaper football journalism? We had Henry Winter on the show, who was fascinating, but offered, to my mind, a sort of slightly romanticised indication of sort of how, how it all worked. I mean, did, those, did you feel that there was something here that that needed to be shaken up I mean, is it, it the jukes i mean this is from the gq piece on the on the athletic but is that is that the correct term of art for the sort of big guns of i think so i have to say i've never used that word myself but i do think that is a phrase that is used yeah mm. no i don't mean that horribly i just mean like i think that's something a little bit from a, like a previous generation yeah i mean did you did you kind of approve of that or did you feel that something needed to be shaken up i don't know about that like we we have some people who have come to write for us who maybe were, you know, had very, very senior jobs at newspapers or websites. Like, you know, Oliver Kay was the chief football correspondent or writer, I can never remember what the title was, of the Times. You know, Danny Taylor was, you know, a multi-award winning chief football writer of The Guardian. I, I don't think we, we didn't have a list of like, we must have these type of people or not those type of people. We just wanted people who thought this is a great project and they were interested in it. And then obviously because of the team by team setup of the app there's a lot of emphasis on that which is not how you'd run a national newspaper and not how you should run a national newspaper right so 
Phil Hay at Leeds and James Pearce at Liverpool have just like these absolutely religious, obsessed followings. And they're hugely, hugely important to how we run. But I don't think that's how, say, the Telegraph or the Times would run, having someone who was just a Leeds writer every day. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. So it wasn't that we were trying to move away from a type of newspaper writer, not at all. We just wanted to have variety. And so that's what we've got. We've got some club writers. We've got some people who are a bit like that. We've got people who just focus on tactics, people who just focus on data. Um, yeah, just a bit of a mix, really. And then also, like, so many young writers. The great thing about starting a company, and by, like from a personal point of view, like the bit that I'm most proud of and most excited by always, was we hired a bunch of people in their first ever journalism jobs. Like people who had never been to a press conference, never been to report a football match. And here we are two years on and they've all like thrived and got little reputations and got fan bases and proved that they can, you know, attract business to us. And it's, it's just absolutely wonderful. Like those are the, those were the exciting bits because a lot of the other people, like they were already established, they didn't actually need us. They just wanted to work for us. Whilst like, these young kids, and I could say that because I'm proper old, because I'm 37, um, this was their big opportunity. And like, that is easily the best bit. I wanted to ask actually about the the, journal- the young journalists that you hired and what kind of editorial support do you give them in terms of developing their writing and, and getting it, them up to the standard that you're after? So every writer, regardless of age, stature, has a, like a dedicated editor. And so we speak to them every day. We give them advice on what to write about, how to improve their writing. We do masterclasses on everything from legal to how to use data in your journalism to how to improve your writing. Now, just stuff like that, I guess. But mostly it's like about being on the end of the phone and like what do you do when an agent's talking to you but you think they're lying to you? And how do you, you know, how do you tell in football who's telling the truth? I mean, that's really hard. I'm not sure I know the answer. But yeah, we just try and you just have dedicated editors and writers matched up so that people can sort of try and navigate what is a fairly intense mad industry and with those young people who've, who've come on board um it's a rule of the show that we always always ask about money as, as rachel's done earlier like how um I mean, be as as guarded or as frank as you like but how much are you able to pay those kind of new hires i can't give you numbers but i mean it just like again like i think i think it's competitive within people of their age and experience um, that's good to hear and, and following up from that and, and just circling back to the point I asked earlier about kind of access I mean how for people who maybe are journalists but aren't familiar with with how it works in football how how controlled is it um, writing about particularly the premiership in the UK and do you face requests for quote or copy approval that kind of thing and how do you navigate those we won't, we won't do approval I just can't bother with that I if there are certain certain clubs like to give access and they they like to give interviews or they like to give briefings and that's wonderful others don't like you can't you can't force it can you um i always say to the journalist that if you're relying on access from the clubs and you're doing your job wrong basically um do original interesting journalism and if sometimes that involves you know speaking to players or managers or whatever then fantastic if not then so be it like you can't like I say, tell people something they don't know. You can't just be the person who just stands there with the microphone on, takes the quotes and then puts it out and claims that it's original journalism. Like, that's that's fine. Like, that, 
And again, I don't, I'm not saying that in like a snobby way. Like that has a massive, massive role because fans want to hear what players and managers say, but don't become so reliant on it that that's your only way of working because that's just mad. One of the ways that The Athletic has distinguished itself from other sports journalism is with brilliant data analysis in terms of, as you suggested, left left back analysis as well as tactical things and you know everything else. Um, but I'm also interested in how data informs um, the actual day-to-day publication of articles. I read somewhere that journalists are provided with quite granular data on kind of drop-off rates and that kind of thing. Is that true? Journalists can see like how their stories are read and like how much sort of business they bring in and like do people enjoy them. Um, and again, like you got to you got to sort of use all that with a with a pinch of salt, right? Like some of that stuff is incredibly helpful. But it's not just as simple as was that article good? Like, did that article go out on a day when it was really quiet and therefore it got a lot of attention? Or did that article go out on the day that Prince Philip died and therefore no one cared? Like, you've got, you've got to remember that there's context, context, context to everything. And if you just become obsessed by the numbers, then, well, that's equally dangerous to not paying attention to them at all, I think. Could you talk us through just sort of some of the kind of pieces that, that you run and particularly given that you don't run match reports, you know, what, what is the kind of bread and butter? Maybe for people who haven't seen the site or, or things like that, what, what are the, the sort of pieces that you've done? And, and particularly on, on your longer features, I wanted to ask about some of the specifics of the ones that you'd sent over, but what are your editorial processes for that? And did you bring in people who had a particular background in, in sort of editing longer magazine features? Or was it was it mostly people who'd, who'd worked in newspapers before for that? Bit of a mixture, right? Again, because you want like a, like a diversity of thinking, don't you? So yeah, we've got some people who are like obsessed with news and trying to get the inside track on newsy stories. Um, we've got some people who come from magazines who are like, again, take a deep breath, spend some time on this feature. Like, I just, last thing you want is a bunch of people all thinking the same. Like, what's the point of that? Um, so yeah, there's a, bit, there's a bit of a combination there, which means you get different kinds of ideas. What, I mean, you said, what is our sort of thinking? Like, how do we come up with these ideas? I don't know, I guess we, if there's like a big topic that everyone's talking about, the job is to try and either explain it really well or tell people things that are new about it if you can't break the, the big story yourself. And then the other thing is just like, what are fans talking about, right? Because it's club by club. What are the fans of this club talking about? Right, once you've identified that, apply those same rules. Can you tell people something about it in depth? Can you add something new? Can you explain it? Because football's full of complicated things from sort of failed takeovers of football clubs to why the sort of finances, you know, are off at the moment to something as simple as why someone's body shape isn't right when they're shooting and that's why they're missing loads of chances. As long as you just apply the same rules of work out what's interesting, try and explain it, try and add to the story. It doesn't actually matter what the topic is. Um, Just find out what people are interested in and tell them something they don't know. And do journalists um, have a particular amount of output they're expected to deliver? Depends on, it depends on the writer. Like most of our writers, like club writers will write three times a week-ish. Might be less on a quiet week, more on a busy week. We do podcasts as well, of course, and sort of get involved in TIFO, which is our video arm. So like, it just depends. If someone says, comes up with a brilliant idea, needs a week to do a 
a project, but we know that's going to be worth it. That's okay too. On the broader business side, um, are you profitable yet? And if so, when is the expectation that, that you would be able to turn a profit? That bit you'll be really annoying, annoyed to hear. It's just not my department. Like, I'm very much like in charge of getting the editorial out. I've got there's a GM Aki Mandar who runs the business over here, and then there's you know Alex Adam and the business team in the US, and like they'd have the answers to that stuff, and I just don't. And in terms of the business as in general, obviously multimedia has been important from the beginning. Could you give us kind of overview of how podcasts and video interact with the editorial side? Yeah, so I mean they each have their own editors, but we sort of obviously chat and try and cross over when we can um, from all kinds of reasons. One from editorially being on the same page but also trying to manage writers times and you can't have everyone demanding everything from the same people at the same time um that's just not fair is it um so yeah we, we all work together we have meetings together and trying to sort of work out how to spread stories and and resources um and that sounds that sounds quite boring but that's kind of just how it is there's no sort of magic thing to it i don't think but podcasts are the sort of Podcasts are the only free aspect of your of your offering. Are they seen as a kind of an advert for the kind of gateway drug, if you will, to to the athletics other product? It's both, isn't it? I mean, Tifo, which our video on, that's free as well. Um, so, you know, Tifo and the podcast are very, very, very good products in their own right. Um, yes, having them outside the paywall means that you can get more people to hear about your brand, and therefore might have sort of intrigue into the written side but i mean they also both like drive advertising as well themselves so you know they're, they're, they're more than just existing for um marketing purposes could you tell us about the piece on the fall of frank lampard that you sent over which i found really fascinating and the two things that struck me were like how this was reported and pulled together because you've given the sort of multiple names on the byline so how like, did you collectively bring it together? And then the point that I wondered is, is did you approach Lampard for comment with that? Because I, I mean, I'm not a sports writer, but it seemed that, you know, this, that was the, the piece that, this whole piece was about third party views on him. And, and had you gone to the horse's mouth, even, even to get a no in that situation? Oh, we all, I mean, we always go to either like player manager or club, you, know, you just legally have to. And that's, that's just, um, that's just what you have to do. I mean, most of the time people don't want to comment, but that's, mm that's fine that's how it works I mean that we built that up over weeks and weeks right um various writers hearing different things and you have to get the corroborated second source triple sourced every little bit of information right um so that takes a long time and I think in that instance there was more or less like one writer Simon who took responsibility for pulling that together and we sort of knew we knew Lampard was going like we just we'd known for a little while and we did a couple of stories that people got really angry at us about and claimed we were sort of causing trouble and I was like if you knew if we could write what we knew <laughs> um, because we didn't want to you know we didn't want to uh, be disrespectful either and so yeah we waited and we waited and we knew that if we could just gather all the really good bits of information for the moment that he left then we'd be able to explain why he left really really well and that's that's why that piece worked. I was really, really pleased with that piece because it, at the right moment, explained things to people and told them stuff that was new rather than putting out 20 separate little stories about, with you know, an incremental update. Kind of off the back of, of that answer, do your journalists 
receive quite a lot of abuse then from kind of tribal tribal fans every single day i mean like like the the, the shit they get is is insane like absolutely insane uh, but that's because football is tribal i don't think it's personal against them it's just people feel far too passionate about football than they should right and come back to what i was talking about earlier they also get a lot of them get a lot of funny stuff and a lot of love but sometimes when things aren't going well or people think they've been unfair or betrayed them or something it can get really really horrible yeah we spend a lot of time trying to help the writers you know deal with social media abuse kind of following from from that point do you ever think that sport and particularly uh, English football because it is so emotionally important to people that the people who are interested in it are, are blind or blinkered to some of the, the less attractive tropes that are associated with it so the the violence or the the aggression but also kind of as you alluded to in that really fascinating piece on lack of minority representation in crowds the history of, of racism and things like that do you think that people give things a, a free pass in football that they would not elsewhere in their lives or elsewhere in, in their world I think less so with the social media abuse. I think I think that comes in in all on all kinds of topics, right? People get nice about politics, like you know, I know like trans people on Twitter who are getting absolutely pelters every day just for existing. So I don't think that's a football thing. Um, it's quite complicated. Like football gets held up quite a lot as like, oh, look at all the problems with football. But I imagine like they're more or less societal problems before they're football problems, right? I mean, football's got to be like one of, in terms of players, one of the most meritocratic industries in terms of race out there, right? Um, yeah, it has massive problems in terms of managers and boardrooms and agents and press officers and journalists on that front. But in other ways, it can be really, really set excellent examples, right? Um, but I do, yeah, I do feel that the cheapest thing in the world is like politicians to have a go at footballers and football clubs when there are actually issues that are probably not born out of those football clubs. I know people have an issue with the fact that footballers earn a lot of money. Like I, I get that, but you know, get over it. That'd be my advice. I, I just, it, it just blows my mind that that's that, that people feel the need to like jump on, football for these things like of course football is not perfect of course it has elements that are really not very nice but like so does the whole of life like why is football so special to peel back more to the kind of planning inside baseball sorry for the mixed sporting metaphor um aspect of the athletics coverage when you're faced with a big event like the euros or the world cup how do you go about planning your coverage for for such an event well, I mean, we hadn't had to do it. Yet. So the, Euro the Euros was our first sort of event like that, our first tournament. Um, and so we just decided, well, we'll, we'll try a lot of stuff that we think is like along, our, along the lines of what we do, like the style of journalism and see whether it works for a tournament. Like, I, think it, I think it did. We did what I think was some really good pieces. We brought in a lot of business. Um, that was great. But you don't, you don't plan it that differently. Like we had to decide... Do we sort of do every country? Do we do some countries? I mean, but the, again, the main journalistic principle is just like work out what's interesting and try and write about it a lot. And also remember to, that you're not English, like we're not English. We're an international company with loads of our subscribers around the world. And although England did well, and we wrote a lot about England because of that, 
loads of our subscribers didn't want to read just about England. They want to read about Italy and Spain and France and Slovakia. Not that many wanted to read about Slovakia. Switzerland. <laughs> Switzerland. There you go. So it's quite important to remember that that as well, I think. How do your subscriber numbers look now? And particularly how many are in in the UK compared to worldwide? I mean, that's the sort of thing that, like, if I say it, that, like, Alex and Adam might sort of take me out the back and shoot me. So I better, I better not. Um, I think the last thing, which was quite a long time ago, that we were allowed to say was, I think there was sitting, well, certainly over, a, certainly over a million. And I think the last time we put numbers out UK, well, I think we said 300,000, but it's decent, decent whack above that these days. Uh, we're coming up to our time limit. But one final question for me is, what's next for The Athletic? Pretty good question. What's next for the athletic? Trying to keep growing now that like the real world's come back. Like this, this company in the UK has basically existed during a pandemic minus five months, which is really weird. So like, you know, obviously you do wonder, right? Okay, well, if fans are coming back again, can we grow like even faster and even more? Um, and can like the young journalists who haven't been able to make any contacts or meet anyone? Or do their jobs be able to do that so i think that i, I know it's like oh god he's bringing up covid and everyone brings up covid but he's kind of important like we're a company that has more or less solely existed during the pandemic so yeah that's where we're at and what about for yourself alex what are your your ambitions and, and do you see yourself staying at the helm for for a long time or do you, do you did this idea of like building something new was that is that a kind of bug that that you've got and you'd want to go and do that again no because this is like properly like feels like something that I've been able to start from scratch, obviously with like all the help from America and everyone else who's doing it, right? So like I love it and the team here are brilliant. Like I I, I did this because I wanted this to be the thing that I stayed at and and did for a, like a long, long time. And that is that is very much the plan, yeah. Um I'm very lucky to do this. So yeah, the reason the reason to leave the times to come here was like, right, this is your project. And yeah don't go anywhere well that's a fitting note to end on thank you so much for your time alex and all the best with everything going forward pleasure that was the always take notes interview with alex kjelski he's on twitter at alex kjelski without a hyphen and the athletics work can be seen at theathletic.com forward slash uk we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your main takeaway from the interview with Alex? I really enjoyed speaking to him. We'd been, we'd been pursuing him for a while. And always interesting on the podcast to talk to someone who's, who's running a, a journalistic or a media institution, but particularly one that is new and that had made such an impact. And I suppose the evidence of that um, is, as we said, this this point that emerged after the interview that the New York Times had bought them for lots of money. A point he said that struck me was this idea that 
what drew him to covering sports in some ways initially was this idea there was such passion attached to something that in the in the most kind of brutal sense didn't matter and he felt that that was a kind of wonderful thing and I think also just this idea of, of disruption, you know, that there was a, an established way that football was covered in the UK and that they determined to do it differently. Rachel, what about you? Yeah, I'd agree with that, especially given the quality in particular of the athletics data journalism. They really do add something new to the sort of field of, of sports journalism in the UK. And it offered a really interesting contrast to the interview with Henry Winter, for example, working at, um, you know, the Times, a more established broadsheet. Um, and I'm glad we managed to ask him about that, that feverish speculation about the hiring spree that they went on at, uh, at hotels. Yeah, although um, he, he maintained a, a level of, uh, of evasiveness about it. I'm not, sure we got, I'm not sure we got the full scoop, but I'm sure that was... Oh, but it was still, it was still good to ask. Yeah, yeah, it was still, still <laughs> emerging time. Anyway, Rachel, what have, what have you been up to? I have been writing a piece about Cause, an artist, which is slightly out of my usual comfort zone, but that's been really interesting because he's uh, put his art on Fortnite. Again, not something I'm particularly familiar with, but it's been uh, great to delve into that world and and something a little more different for me. Um, so that will be going up the day that we're recording this. Uh, how about you? Um, I've been kind of picking things up after Christmas. So I've got this uh, just a number of magazine projects that I'm kind of forging forging ahead with at this stage. So so it's good, but um, the usual the usual sort of juggling act with with those things. But yeah, busy, but but. Uh, uh, in a good way, I would say. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.